I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. So wonderful, Dr. Stacey Sims, to have you on the podcast today. Um, she is an applied researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, and more importantly, because of how I actually found out about her, her book, Roar, which is absolutely incredible. If you don't have it, you all need to run out right now and grab yourself a coffee. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to finally chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where are you right now? I am in New Zealand on the northeastern side of the country. Okay. All right. Now, did you, are you originally from there or? Uh, Army Brett, U.S. Army Brett, and then uh, landed in New Zealand in the late 90s for work and then okay. went back to the States for, uh, gosh, almost 10 or so years and then moved back here three years ago, I think, because I'm married to uh, a Kiwi and oh, nice. wanted to come back, get out of the San Francisco Bay Area because we have a daughter and seemed like life would be a little bit easier here. And right now in the current COVID situation, it's pretty good. Oh, well, good. I'm glad to hear that. We got about um, a few feet of snow this afternoon. So it looks like it might be a little bit warmer where you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My face is bright red. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard for me where I'm like, oh, January. Oh, it's summer. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm still <laughs> Well, I'm jealous. I'm definitely jealous for that. So can you tell us a, like a brief uh, overview of kind of how you got into the research that you've done? Like, what was your main motivation? Um, because you filled an incredibly important gap here in just the entire industry. Yeah, so um, it all started being selfish, really. I get, you know, your late teens, early 20s, and you want all these answers for yourself to make yourself better, maybe, or just asking questions and I couldn't get the answers. And then when I did start asking questions, brushed off because I was a woman. And growing up in San Francisco, that just, you know, really gets under your skin because it's all about equality and understanding. Mm -hmm. And it really drove the passion to understand, like, why are women not included in research? Or why are we just being generalized when men don't have periods? Like, women age differently than men. So why are we having to assume that what's good for a man is good for a woman? And yeah, it's been a journey for, for sure, but it's just been in the past about four or five years where we're really starting to get uptake in specific female research and people talking about periods and how women are different and inclusion. And so it's been great, but yeah, it all started from a selfish, selfish drive, um, but yeah. You know, you'd think it's it's 2021, right? And we're able to make like, you know, electronic limbs and all this stuff. And why is it that we have totally missed the mark on actually doing research that can apply to females as well? It's just wild to me. I know. I know. It's, it's a lot of it is a sociocultural aspect, too, because mm -hmm. like women have been marginalized in Western society for so long. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, it was only in the sixties where Catherine Switzer was running the Boston marathon and she was like the only one being pushed off and in the grand scheme of things, that wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And, true. And women are still, yeah, you know, women are still marginalized and it's, it's trying to make that leap across that male lens and across the patriarchal system and just now starting to be able to make those inroads. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing because you're paving the way and we're internally grateful for that. Um, I love the quote that you have on your website, you know, work with your physiology, not against it. Uh, You know, there's so much information about there about how to eat, how to exercise, you know, and, and like you mentioned, it's, it's very generalized. A lot of the research is done in men and um, you know, how can you just give us like a, a brief entrance into like, why it's important to work with your physiology, especially as a female and how that can, you know, enhance anybody's goals, whether it's someone's a, an everyday, you know, marathoner or just like a recreational athlete, like why is that important? There are two layers to this. Like we're inherently born um, with sex differences. I mean, you have a genetic profile of XX versus XY, but across that, you have differences in muscle enzyme activity, mitochondrial proteins, respiratory rate, sympathetic drive, parasympathetic drive, just every system of the bodies, there's a sex difference to be found. And then when you enter puberty and you start getting your menstrual cycle and you start having hormone perturbations, that adds another complexity onto how our body responds to stress. So when we talk about training and diet, those are extreme stresses to the body. So if we are not paying attention to the fact that, that we are women, we're not paying attention to the fact that um, hormones have a big play in how our body can handle stress, respond to stress, adapt to it, then we're pretty much just hitting a brick wall. There's, you know, so many women that are talking about burnout or overtraining or not getting the results that they want. And it's just small, slight tweaks. Maybe it's menstrual cycle syncing. So you're training according to your menstrual cycle. Or you're looking at overall stress response and recovery responses and training according to recovery. Um, and when you start doing that and fueling for what you are doing instead of exclu- excluding fueling from the conversation, people end up sleeping better, getting body composition change that they want, better gut health, uh, uh, just lower anxiety, just so many different things without a lot of extra work. Matter of fact, they start to bring back some of the or reduce the load of the exercise stress um, and the mental stress that goes with it. Excellent. Now, so as females, we obviously have fluctuating hormones. We have different phases of our menstrual cycle. And I know in the book, you talk a lot about this, about how to really dial in on your diet and your exercise but why would it not be appropriate? You know, I, I work with a lot of clients and they'll say things like, you know, I, my personal trainer told me that this is like, you know, I've got this, this is on my training schedule this week, but I'm not really feeling up to it. I was feeling super unmotivated. And one of my specialties is gut health. So then, you know, they'll push through that week of training and then their, their gut health is worse, their energy is worse, you know, all that stuff. So can you kind of walk through, um, you know, wh- however deep you want to walk through, like what, how can we train with our menstrual cycle and, and how does that, how is that supposed to change during the course of a month? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you the overview of, for people who need the overview of what a menstrual cycle typically looks like. So, you know, a 28 day textbook cycle where you have day one is the onset of bleeding, leading to about day 12 or 13 with ovulation. 
And then from that point to the start of your next period, which is usually about day 28, that's a menstrual cycle. And across it, you have a low hormone phase. So it's estrogen, progesterone are really low in the first um, part of your menstrual cycle. And then there's a surge of estrogen right around ovulation. Then after ovulation, estrogen sort of dips and comes back up and progesterone rises until the, you start bleeding again. And with these hormone perturbations, you have different responses. So when estrogen and progesterone are low, this is where our core temperature is lower. We have um, better oxygenation. We can access hydrate well. We recover better. We sleep better. We have more REM sleep within that sleep patterning. Um, and so we can go hard. We can do intensity and recover from it. Or we can train more like men, which is not something I really want to say, but people can relate to that. Like mm -hmm. you do a typical training program. Around ovulation, you have a, a changeover because now you have a different hormone, um, I guess, milieu, where you have an increase in estrogen. And in some women, that estrogen surge makes them feel bulletproof. And in other women, they feel super flat. And then they'll feel bulletproof a couple of days later. With that estrogen surge, you can really hit it hard um, because it is an anabolic property. Estrogen in isolation is anabolic. So you can go hard and recover well. But then as progesterone starts to come up, this is where you end up with elevations of estrogen progesterone. You need to fall more into a steady state, more um, aerobic work, uh, not so much the intensity, not fighting things so much. And then the few days before your period starts, maybe five or seven days before, this is where you want to start thinking about um, deload or technique under the bar, running mechanics, anything that's more um, neuromuscular, less cardiovascular task taxing and depleting because we are more in a sympathetic drive. Um, our bodies have a higher core temperature. We have less water in the blood for sweating. We can't access hydrate very well because estrogen makes your body hold on to carbohydrate and use more fatty acids. Progesterone is catabolic, breaks down protein to release amino acids to build the uterine lining. But then when those hormones drop and you have the bleed pattern, then this is where you can go hard again. So that's the general schematic, but of course there are individual differences. So when women are tracking their cycle and they can track their training over their cycle, they'll know if they feel bulletproof or not around ovulation. Mm. Or if, uh, um, you know, five days before their period starts, they are absolutely flat and can't do anything, but then it gets better. And starting to understand and see that patterning, then you can start phasing training in according to how your body's responding. I think that's a really important point that you brought up is, you know, everybody's individualized in that, you know, schematic, because I'll see people who have been given maybe more of a personalized plan that's like, okay, here's how you should train based on this, you know, part of your cycle, but they might not feel that way. And so um, the importance of tuning in and seeing like, okay, like, what is my body feeling right now? Like, if you're not feeling 100%, and someone tells you that in that part of your cycle, you're supposed to feel 100% listen to your body, you know, it seems, you know, I think right. that's easier said than done, like in the society that we live in, it's, you know, push hard, go hard. And so we, we assume that we're weak, if we can't, you know, basically check the box of what we were supposed to do. Um, but tuning in and listening to your body, because everybody is different. Exactly. And I find that when women do that, then all of that negative self talk starts to dissipate. Because if you don't understand where you are, and how your body is being affected by hormone changes, then you have a bad day in the gym or you have a bad day in whatever you're doing. And you're like, Oh, you know, my fitness is taking a backwards step or what didn't I do? Right. I didn't get enough sleep, too much stress. But if you know that 
every month on that particular day, you're going to be flat and awful. Then you're like, oh, I'm just going to go for an easy recovery spin, or I'm going to do some yin yoga or take a walk, do something that's really beneficial to my mental state and not tax my body. Yeah. Um, It's like it's giving yourself permission. Yeah. It's great to see. It's just refreshing when women finally find that and they're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah. You're, and you're a big proponent of kind of tracking these things, you know, keeping these metrics of how do I feel? How can I adjust my training based on that? Which I think is great. Is there a specific way that you recommend that people track like an app or anything specific? Yeah. So, I mean, there are lots of apps out there that you can use. Um, like the newest one that's out is wild AI and it's using artificial intelligence to understand you and your cycle so you know you don't have to keep track of day 23 i feel like crap because it'll tell you hey in a couple of days you're going to feel a little bit flat so maybe you should think about your training so that's like the top end um and then you have things like hello clue that's an ovulation predictor app where Mm -hmm. you're just really tracking the phases fitter woman's more of a 2d type app where it is for active women you can even do pen paper you know on you know mark on your calendar like day one of your period yeah. uh, yes, whatever works for you really uh yeah so depends on like younger set tends to really like the app and all the details of the app and then we have you know older set here perimenopause and are like nah I'm just gonna mark on my calendar because that's <laughs> yeah. what I'm doing my whole life Right. I, I, I've used so many different apps and I'm 28. So, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm fairly tech savvy, but I keep just coming back to the notes section of my phone. And it literally says at the top, like menstrual cycle tracker. And I just go in every day and I'm like logging my basal body temperature, my symptoms. And I prefer that so much more. Yeah. Because it's easy. Right. And it's something that you're like, you use your phone, you use your notes all the time. And it's just Mm -hmm. something that's really easy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was in a conversation yesterday um, about, you know, tracking cycles and stuff and came up as a, you know, why don't we just ask them what their clinician said? Like, when you walk in and a clinician's like, when is the last day of your period? Most women don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're like pulling stuff out. So it's like, if it's on your phone and you're used to using your phone, you'd be like, oh yeah, I can tell you now. Yeah. Every client knows, they know that when I ask that question, there better be some sort of marker where they can go in and, and track it. They're like, hold on, let me get my clue app or my flow, whatever it is, whatever app they're using. But um, yeah, it's important information to know. Now, in terms of cycle, you know, there's a lot of people who use oral contraceptives or, you know, just birth control methods. And I know you talk about this in your book. um, And I've discussed a lot about kind of how it can impact the gut microbiome and um, you mentioned how it can interfere with performance. Now, could you speak a little bit to that for the listeners? Yeah. So when we talk about natural cycle and I just kind of gave the overview of how the hormones perturbate and how you respond. When you're looking at a combined oral contraceptive pill, it's a completely different hormone profile. So we know that the first couple of days of the active pill, you still have an elevation in your heart rate reserve. You still have really good recovery but then it rapidly drops and it holds steady at that lower baseline point while you're on the active pill. And then when you switch to the sugar pill, the first couple of days of the sugar pill, you're still at that lower state. And then you'll see a rapid rise of heart rate variability in all your recovery methods. And it is because the OC, the combined OC, downregulates all your natural hormones. Mm. So you're in this hormone state that's controlled by the exogenous hormones, but it's not representative of your own endocrine system. 
And the two outlying points that I was just talking about where you have better recovery, that's because when you first start taking the active pill, you haven't had the uptake yet. Your body isn't completely saturated with the those hormones and mm. you're not completely downregulating your cycle. And then when you first start taking the sugar pill, it takes a couple of days for your body to wash out those exogenous hormones. So it's the it's interesting to see when you're working with different athletes who have OC-driven cycles versus a natural cycle or a progestin-only cycle, which is yet again different, where their patterning is very similar to a natural cycle, except for the last few days mm. of that high hormone state where it's modulated a little bit because the progestin component kind of takes over. And then an IUD, again, is different in the fact that it doesn't affect any of your hormones, and so you still are naturally cycling, and you may or may not get a bleed depending on how much of that uterine lining is being built by the um, estrogen and, and progesterone effects. So yeah, it really depends on what you're on and how it affects you. But most women are on an oral combined oral contraceptive pill and it just attenuates everything. It increases stress, it reduces recovery, it, slow down, it slows down your rate of adaptation to high intensity. We know that women who are on a higher estrogen component, so on a 30 microgram versus a 20 microgram dose, they'll put on more lean mass, but there's no strength included in that lean mass. So it's mm. not functional mass. Um, and these are all the things that, that are not in conversation. Like GPs don't know it. It's not that well talked about in the literature and general scope, even though it's there and it's robust about it. Um, because we still have this overarching patriarchal lens of it's in the two part basket. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough because I'm a dietitian, right? So I was trained, you know, in food and, and when I'm talking to clients about it, there is this hesitancy that I have because I almost feel like, okay, I'm maybe not qualified to talk about it. I mean, I'm qualified to read research and I can extrapolate that plenty, but you know, I'll make a comment and, and I want, of course, the, the decision that anybody makes to be an informed decision based on their own personal health. Like, I want to respect that, but, you know, they'll go to their, their, you know, gynecologist or whatever. And they'll say, well, I brought it up to my gynecologist and they said they have no knowledge of that being the case, or it's not the case. And I think that's not fair. You know, I think informed consent is, is what should be at the forefront of practice, but. Yeah, it's true. I mean, working here in the high performance, they have uh, a female sports doc that's come in that isn't that well versed on a lot of the newer things that have come out. And so she dismisses it, even though the players have been following something different until she's come in and they're like, wait a second, I'm confused. Mm. And there is that lack of education from the top down and from down and up. So yeah, that's why we're doing podcasts, education. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Awesome. And you, you've talked to about this, how you know, you know, a lot of athletes will lose their cycle. I've definitely talked about that on the podcast before, like reds, um, red S and, um, hypothalamic amenorrhea. And we know that there's, there's severe negative consequences, especially over the long term of not getting a regular menstrual cycle, but you've talked about how you can leverage your natural cycle to be a better athlete, to perform better, um, you know, just overall. And, and so I think, kind of switching that that mindset that you need to feel good all the time can can also really help that. Yeah, so I mean, I get asked all the time, well what do you recommend if you don't if you tell women not to be on a on an OC? I'm like, well, I want every woman to be naturally cycling unless they have a health issue that requires them to be on something that's completely different. So, PCOS, endometriosis, some other reasons. Because 
it's a really good telling sign of how your body's responding, but also your endocrine health, right? Mm-hmm. So as you know, with amenorrhea and reds, one of the first thing that goes is thyroid and, and your menstrual cycle. So if you get to a point where you're starting to have a lot of irregularities and feeling flat and tired all the time, then it's time to pull back. And your body's giving you that signal of, hey, wait a second, something's going on because now everything's irregular. If you're on an OC, that doesn't happen because you you don't have any feedback from your own endocrine system. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think that's, it's just really good to know. Like you said, it's good to be educated on it. And at the end of the day, like there's, there's so much more to it in terms of, of course, the emotional aspect of it, but um, just being educated on the science behind it and how having a normal menstrual cycle is healthy and necessary. Yeah. Um, My, my vision and my hope is like the upcoming eight and 10 year old girls, when they get to high school, they'll all be like, I got my period. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we have, there's such a taboo about it. Right. And I, you know, I personally had my own journey with hypothalamic amenorrhea and it was like, you know, when you lose your period, you don't even realize, I mean, I didn't even realize how much I appreciated it until I got it back and was like, wow, like, you know, we demonize this and we say, oh, I feel like crap part of the month and I have to bleed and all that stuff. But it's like, it's such a beautiful thing to be a woman and to have that experience and to not, you know, there's, there's so many, you know, intricate details into that story, but yeah, it should be something that we feel good about and are proud of having. Right. And I often like when male coaches or other male practitioners don't want to know about it, I'm like, you know, really, you wouldn't be here if there wasn't a menstrual cycle. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. I love, I love that response. (laughs) <laughs> that's great I'm gonna I'm gonna have to quote you on that for sure you can have it you can have it for free yeah and you can use it <laughs> thank you I appreciate that um now you talked about you know changes in macronutrient needs for instance you talked about in the beginning of the cycle um, or in the first you know the follicular follicular phase of the cycle you can access carbohydrates more when you say that does that mean your carbohydrate need intake is increased by saying that, or do you just mean like you're, you're just better able to access it versus like being able to use fat as fuel? So in the low hormone phase, you don't have estrogen that is, um, attenuating your body's ability to access glycogen. Okay. So you can access it and you can also put it back in. So you don't necessarily need to increase total carbohydrate intake, but you do need to be conscious that you need to put carbohydrate and protein in pretty quickly after exercise to maximize the glute core and all the other um, aspects of, of replenishing glycogen. When you get into the high hormone state, estrogen inhibits your body's ability to access glycogen through uh, an inhibition of some of the enzymes. Mm. And the flip side of that, you're not going to get a lot of it into your blood to use. You're going to get a lot of free fatty acids. You also don't have an impetus to store more because you haven't accessed more. So you increase your carbohydrate intake in and around exercise, especially if you want to do any kind of intensity. So when you're looking at total intake, it doesn't change much except during the exercise period where you want to increase what you're eating in and around exercise in a high hormone state. Okay. Protein, on the other hand, changes. Because in the low hormone, yeah, you want to have a higher intake of protein because you want to stop a breakdown effect. But in the high hormone progesterone is breaking lean tissue down all of the time, not just exercise. So you want to have a higher intake approach to support that. Okay. Yeah. I have, I, I can't, the most used handout that I have amongst my clients, you know, an athlete 
and, or just, I mean, I like, actually, I read a post recently that you posted where it said, um, if you intentionally exercise, you are an athlete. And I really like that. And I probably just butchered how you said it or whatever, but that's um, it. Okay. Yeah. So I hope the listeners can take that in because people will say, well, I only do, you know, core power yoga or something a few days a week. It's like, if you're doing intentional activity, you're an athlete. So when we say athletes, whether you're, you know, Olympic trials athlete or every day, just recreational work, you're an athlete period. Yes. Um, That made made me lose my train of thought. Where was I headed with that? Um, Handout. You're talking about a handout. Yes, handout. Oh, yeah. So protein. Protein is the biggest issue amongst my clients. People are not, or females that I see are often not eating enough protein. It seems to be that like dinner is the time when they're, they're doing really well with it. That just seems to be a really common trend. Like breakfast, they're doing like maybe some oatmeal or grabbing a bar or something like that. Lunch, they're like, oh, let's, let's have a salad, you know, maybe grab some, some beans on it or something. And then they have a nice, you know, steak and mashed potato dinner with their boyfriend or something like that. But protein, especially around exercise, people are not, it doesn't seem amongst my clients, they're really not prioritizing it. And I'm constantly having to send this reminder of how important it is. Yep. I know. It's, I think a lot of it stems from if we have a lot of protein, we're going to get kidney problems, we're going to put on too much mass, and all of those myths have been dispelled. And the other thing is protein is really satiating. You know that, right? So if you're going to have a big protein breakfast and you're not going to be hungry for lunch and people are like, oh, I'm so full. What did I, I need to cut back? Um, so the other thing to consider is like the regular dosing throughout the day because we know that that's kind of the best way to incorporate protein. And when people are like, oh, I can't have that much protein. It's like, you can have a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there. And then they slowly start thinking, well, anytime I eat, I need a little bit of protein once I'm yeah, but you're right. People are so afraid of it. And they end up like stacking their calories at the beginning and the end of the day, which mm-hmm. is not beneficial at all, especially if you're trying to stay out of that catabolic state. Mm-hmm. You want to build lean mass, you want to recover and be able to go hard the next day. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. And there's, there's little things you can do. Like it, when I said this to a client one time, and this was my mistake, you know, I, we, we were focused on protein and she came back. She's like, I don't think I can eat any more chicken breasts. Like, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm, I feel like I'm eating so much chicken. And I said, chicken is not the only source of protein. This is, this is probably why I developed the handout that I, that I developed was, you know, there's pumpkin seeds, there's nuts, there's, um, you know, there's whole grains, there's plenty of other protein sources that you can combine in addition to those that, you know, are definitely a better amino acid profile. But you know, you it, don't think of protein as just like meat, there's, there's plenty of yeah. other sources. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah, there are, yeah, it, it's one of those things where we're in this bubble, and we understand it all. And we forget that people who haven't had our education or exposed to what we've been exposed to, they just are like, well, what's a calorie? Well, yeah. what do you mean that yeah. bag of potato chips, two times the amount of calories I should be having? And there's no protein. <laughs> just- yep, I did a class on portion sizes last week with one of the, um, the companies that I work with. And it was just, it was very eye-opening to say the least, for sure. Um, so speaking of nutrient timing, I mean, intermittent fasting has gotten all the rage this year. I kind of know your, your take on it, but I want the listeners to hear your professional opinion. Um, you know, how can intermittent fasting not be optimal for performance and for hormones for females? Yeah. 
so we also have to look at like where the intermittent fasting stuff came from, right? So we look at it and it's, it comes from trying to improve longevity and exercise has never been part of that conversation. So when we start looking at all the stuff that exercise does, where you have autophagy, uh, you have fasting aspect from fuel depletion, your body responding to that stress, it's the same thing as intermittent fasting. It's just when you start looking at a hormone complication when you're adding exercise in is if you have a fast and then you get up and you train fasted, you're increasing the amount of stress and you're also increasing cortisol responses. If you have a cortisol peak at seven o'clock in the morning and that's going to be high if you haven't been eating and then you go into training, which is a breakdown state. Few things are going to happen in that training session. One, you're not going to be able to hit intensities that you want to. So people might go to a uh, you know, F45 or a hit class and they're trying to hit intensities, but they're not. So they're going to stay in that gray zone where they're not really going to get any adaptation. And then if they're still in that fasting mentality, they're going to delay food intake even after that. So they stay in this catabolic state. And for women, we are very susceptible to that catabolic state because of uh, neuropeptide kisspeptin. So with kisspeptin, there are different thresholds of downregulation for men and women. For women, we're really sensitive to poor nutrient status and poor calorie intake. And as soon as we get to a point where we have elevated cortisol and not enough amino acids and glucose and stuff circulating, kisspeptin gets turned down. And what happens is it turns off that LH pulse for menstrual cycle it um, causes a little bit of thyroid dysfunction and it's pretty much the key for endocrine health. So if we start having individuals who are doing a lot of intermittent fasting and fasted training um, because it falls in the fasting period, they're perpetuating a low energy state and the complications that come with low energy availability. If we talk about you know, the longevity aspect that comes from intermittent fasting, it's the basic idea of don't eat after dinner and then eat breakfast. You get that 12-hour fast, right? So you're getting all the benefits of what people are talking about fasting, but then you're not compromising your exercise training. You're going to garner the benefits because you are exploring. And I hear so many people are like, oh, I do so great on intermittent fasting. It's like, well, do you exercise sometimes? Well, if you don't exercise, then maybe it's okay, but really it's that cortisol in the morning you need to be concerned about. And when you're talking about the 20-day versus... I mean, the 20 hour versus the 16 versus a 12 hour fast. If we just go back to normal eating patterns and almost everyone does a 12 hour fast and your body thanks you for it. So yeah, that's the, the overview really of when you're combining exercise with intermittent fasting, it's a, it's a sticky point because all the stuff that comes in the media from intermittent fasting does not include exercise. Hmm. Yeah. And we know the benefits of exercise can, you know, they're far reaching, right? And and so yeah. if most of the people that come into my office are not interested in intermittent fasting to improve their longevity or their brain health or, you know, prevent cancer, it's body composition. I want to, yeah. you know, control my food, this and that. Um, so I think it's a really, really good message. And I always say the same thing. I'm like, well, just, you know, don't eat when you go to bed and there you go. You're fasting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's more for me looking at how things have um, I guess really changed or really not changed in the food and fitness. It's another means of being an exclusionary diet, right? And more people have control because they're not eating and it's just another form of that exclusionary stuff. 
And when you start pointing that out, you get the defensiveness. It's not exclusionary. It's for health. It's like, no, it's vanity, right? And there are other ways you can work on body composition that are better for health and body composition. Yeah. I well said, I'm going to leave it at that. You said that perfectly. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I also work with a lot of females who aren't, you know, having a menstrual cycle anymore. So whether, and I think we also, not we as in you and I, but like, you know, as as far as I knew when I was in my training as a dietitian was like, you just kind of term menopause. It's just menopause. We didn't talk about like perimenopause, like, or any, we just kind of grouped it into one group. And I work with a lot of females now who are in various stages of this hormonal shift in life. And they are frustrated, like they are frustrated because, you know, they're gaining belly fat, they're not feeling energy there. There's just so many different things going on. And I had a dentist one time and she was, I think this was when I was like a freshman in college or something. She's got her hands like in my mouth. And she's like, you know what you should study, you should really like focus on women with menopause, because we like have such a hard time losing weight. And we do everything right. And we do all the things. And I just remember sitting there being like, yeah, okay. Like, and, and now that I'm in it and I'm working with this, you know, subset of population, they're not my, you know, main clientele, but I work with a lot of them. They struggle. And it's just like, I feel so bad. And after even reading your book, I've learned so much about the training differences, the nutrition differences. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a topic that I really wanted to dive into a little bit today. Yeah, for sure. So um, menopause is just one point in time. And it's funny because everyone groups it into that biological state of no hormones. But it's just that one day in a woman's life that marks 12 months of no period. The time before that is perimenopause, which usually starts in the mid-30s um, and lasts until you hit that one point in time. And then after that one point in time is postmenopause, where that's your new biological state. We talk about the perimenopause where you're having a lot of hormone fluctuation. Women won't necessarily realize that they're in this state because they'll still have a regular period, but it's the hormone ratios that are changing. Mm-hmm. So this is where they're like, hey, what I was doing even two years ago, one year ago, isn't working for me anymore. I'm not able to lean up. I'm putting on belly fat. Am I eating too much? I need to train more. And so they get into this whole cycle. But it's, again, the way the hormones are affecting things. So we know that when women become more estrogen dominant, then they have a lot more inflammation. They have a stimulus putting on the cereal body fat. They get a little bit of um, insulin resistance. So all of these things play into putting on more body fat and becoming quote squishy overnight. And then when we look at the new biological state of postmenopause, and you don't have those hormones at all, then we're having to look at, okay, well, what did those hormones specifically do? And now what do we need to do to replace that stimulus? Not through hormone replacement, but through diet and exercise. So we know that estrogen is anabolic. Progesterone helps relegate um, some of your sympathetic parasympathetic drive. It's also responsible for insulin control, um, blood glucose uptake. So there's a lot of things where now we're like, okay, well, we need some high intensity training and none of that gray zone stuff not that long, slow stuff, because your body's already well equipped for spring and burning fat. We need a really high, high stimulus to be a really strong stress so that your body pulls in carbohydrate and learns not to store fat, especially the cereal fat. We also need to lift and, and do heavy resistance training to get a mechanical response for lean mass development because estrogen is there to help, help with that. 
and bone stuff as well. We need to add in biometric work to maintain fast twitch and power generation because we lose that as well when we start changing those hormone ratios. So when we look across the board at the real, I guess, guidelines that are out there for peri and postmenopausal women, it's like eat phytoestrogens, do 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise a week, which is primarily walking, put in two days of resistance training of eight to 10 reps. It's like none of that is appropriate. None of that is going to help change. You might get a little bit less of a cardiovascular disease risk factor from it, but you're not going to get any kind of body composition change or improve your speed or reduce your vasomotor because you're not supplying your body with the stress that it needs that the hormones used. Mm, okay. That's, that's really helpful to kind of conceptualize. I think hopefully for the listeners of, you know, why, why that type of training is appropriate is because you're missing something that was there. So you're kind of just creating almost like an artificial, not really artificial, but your, your own stimulus for, creating that situation that's now kind of gone because of the loss of estrogen. Yep. Exactly. That's great. Now, are you talking like CrossFit style workouts? Are we talking like pick up some heavy weights and just do shorter reps? Like, what does that look like? So when we talk about like the high intensity interval training, we're talking like you are, are hitting high, high intensity and polarizing it with really low intensity recovery. So it's like that 90% how hard you can go. And it might start off with three reps of 20 seconds and then you build up the fitness. And I think one of the, the things that women are not good at doing is understanding what high intensity is and what really low intensity is. Yeah. Because all of the gym classes are primarily in that 70 to 80%. Even like boot camp and stuff, they never really drive you up to that high intensity because there's too many repetitions of it. So everyone stays in that. One of the first things I try to get women to understand is what is 90 to 100% and what is 50%. And then a hit class or a hit session is at 90 to 100% um, with that 50% in between and the variable ratios of that. And when you understand that, you understand what I mean when you say high intensity stress. Mm. We're talking about resistance training is, as I'm notoriously known for saying LHS, um, censored lift heavy stuff. But we lose um, we lose that neuromuscular stimulation for power and fast twitch. So when we're looking at doing eight to ten reps, you're not looking for hypertrophy. That's not what you need. You need something that's going to stimulate satellite cell development for lean mass and get that neuromuscular stimulus for fast twitch, so that you maintain integrity of the, of the muscle itself. Otherwise, it's just going to become potential for um, sarcopenia and you're going to develop a lot of aerobic capacity, but you're not going to get strength. Mm -hmm. So it's short, sharp, lift heavy and heavy is relative. If you have a long training history, then you can go in and lift hundred kilo deadlifts. But if you have no training history, then it might be 20 kilo deadlift and that's heavy for you. So you're looking at zero to six reps and zero being like your last set, you're like, I really can't do another one, but I'm going to try with good mm-hmm. form. Adding plyometrics in, if that's not contraindicated for joints, because you want the rebound and the power from plyometrics and jumping, that is beneficial for bone strength. Running doesn't do it. It's not multidirectional stress. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the plyo for quite a few reasons. One, it's, it's helpful for um, insulin and, and blood glucose control because of high intensity it's good for power because that's what plyo is. It's all about power development. So it's that neuromuscular and power development. And then it's 
jumping is good for bone. So when we're talking about the kinds of training to do, it's implementing that kind of training in, and it's not putting it all in one week. You can take the periodized aspect of, okay, for this two-week block, I'm going to focus on plyometrics, and then I'll have some really slow, slow, slow recovery days in between. Where if you're a runner, you're going out and you're running so embarrassingly slow, power walkers might be passing. <laughs> and you're just out for the enjoyment, right? And, and then you have a little bit of a break and you go, okay, well, the next two weeks, I'm going to focus on that top end, high intensity stuff. And the plyos take kind of a backseat where you're not focusing on them anymore. So it's really polarized training. And it's not a lot of it. We get out of the idea of how many minutes we're doing, and it's about the intensity and the recovery from it. And this is the best methodology of training to change that body composition when you get into the hormone misstep of peri and postmenopause. Hmm. And you talk about, I think there's two things that I want it because I can, I'm pretending like I'm one of my clients and I'm listening to this episode and I'm thinking, well, Dr. Sims, you want me to lift weights? Well, what if I'm going to get bulky? So what would you say to that client? You don't. <laughs> Women do produce testosterone, but not enough to cause bulkiness. If yeah. you are mesomorphic, so you build muscle really easily, you have to work really hard as a mesomorph to get really bulky muscles. You won't. And if you're lifting heavy, it's not about the splitting and building muscle. It's about the strength that you are recruiting one particular muscle group for contraction. And that's part of the neuromuscular stimulus. It's not about um, breaking down the fibers and rebuilding them to be bigger. It's about how many muscle fibers can I recruit for one contraction? And the more power and heavy lifting you do, the more recruitment you get for a stronger contractile aspect in that muscle. And that's correct. Yeah. And your emphasis too on recovery. So you mentioned recovery and I see a lot of people who are going in and doing this type of training five days a week. And they're wondering why they have cravings. They're wondering why they have digestive issues and they're not seeing results. And you've mentioned multiple times, training is a form of stress on the body. When the yeah. body is in a form of stress all the time, why the heck would it want to lose weight? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I work with a lot of CrossFit athletes and I see it. People are coming in five, six days a week to the gym, doing the high intensity stuff and then lifting before or after, or they're doing multiple sessions a day and they're not losing any weight, especially the women. A lot of belly fat is still staying there and then they're counting their macros. They're in a low energy, high stress state the whole time. Like they're not eating enough. They're not sleeping well. They're not um, shutting down cortisol and catabolic responses. So, of course, they're not going to lose weight and they're not going to progress at all in their training. Mm -hmm. And you'll see people who plateau and they stay there and they're getting frustrated. And they're like, I don't understand because so many are in a low energy state because people are afraid to eat. Mm -hmm. like, eat. There's a reason. There's a reason there's food is to fuel you and to reduce undue stress. Yeah. People don't understand that concept of like, the fact that if you are under fueling when you're training, you're actually just creating a state of inflammation. And, um, yep. you know, just, it's, it's just wild to me. And I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that people are ignorant. I mean, this is diet culture, right? This is, you know, we've also seen this in the media and these messages did not just appear, of course, 
But um, yeah, there is this, there's an extreme fear to eat. And I always tell my clients, I'm like, if you're exercising to lose weight, you need to be thinking, you need to, you can think of weight loss in, in the like, you know, kind of scheme of things, but you need to be thinking like an athlete. You need to be thinking like fueling because the way that things work is not, okay, I'm going to burn off these calories and then create a deficit and then weight loss will happen. It's how can I perform, use exercise as a means to improve your mental health, your hormone balance, you know, your body composition, but think of just eating and fueling and reducing inflammation from a state, like from a standpoint of weight loss. Yeah. And, you know, people are like, oh, I burn, I, I loathe Christmas time with all the women health type you know, articles that come out. Yeah. If you have five cookies, then you have to run on the treadmill for 60 minutes, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, no, it doesn't equate. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with when you are exercising, you're putting your body under stress. We don't exercise to get fitter. We exercise to create a stress that your body has to become to get better. And if you're not fueling for it and you're not giving the body food when it needs it to get those adaptations, then why go? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're not going to get benefit from anything if you're not fueling appropriately. Maybe it's a social engagement and all those things are fine. But if you're looking for metabolic changes and body composition changes, you have to think exercise, huge stress. And we want to have that stress so that we can get fitter. How do we get fitter? Recovery. How do we recover? Food. Mm. Excellent. Well said. Now, with regards to recovery for women who are getting older and who are in, you know, either the perimenopause, postmenopause stage, why does protein become so much more important? And what would your recommendation be to a woman going through that stage of life? Yeah. So in younger men and women, um, the mTOR complex, which is the signaling for turning on muscle protein synthesis, it has a leucine threshold. So you eat protein post-exercise or you have a circulating amount of amino acid that has leucine there that can turn it on. As you get older, that threshold response is attenuated or muted. So you need more, a more consistent basis to keep that mTOR turned on. We also know that leucine crosses the blood-brain barrier and can help with symptoms. As women get older, they need more protein to stimulate lean mass development and to help from that central nervous system so that they can go longer, harder, they can hit the intensity. When you hit postmenopause and have a flat line of hormones, you need exercise and protein dosing to actually build that lean mass. It becomes super important to get regular doses and higher doses. I've read a couple of studies where they're like, there was no difference between um, a 20 gram and a 30 gram and a 40 gram dose. Matter of fact, in a 30 and 40 gram dose, there was no response. It's like, really? In, in what age group? Oh, in the younger age group. You look at an older age group and there's a difference, both in men and women. Men, it's a little bit later, but in women, you get that at that 30 and 40 gram mark. Hmm. The 20 doesn't quite turn it on as much, so you're not getting a bigger response. But when you get to the 30 and 40 gram in the older age set, that's when you start getting those post-exercise um, muscle protein synthesis responses that you want. Mm. Excellent. And now I, I had a client recently and I'm just going to pick on her for a minute, but you know, we, she's, she's of the age and she just started incorporating a lot more high intensity activity training. She's lifting heavy weights. And, you know, I said, okay, well, what'd you have after your workout? Cause she's gotten really good at getting her post-workout meal in. Cause we've really stressed that. 
And I said, okay, so she said, I had a smoothie. And I said, okay, what was in it? Okay. So spinach, you know, banana, um, we had some, some, a little bit of oats in there and then some peanut butter. I said, well, how much peanut butter did you have? Uh, about a tablespoon. And I said, so where's the protein? She said, well, the peanut butter is the protein. And so that's not enough. That's not enough not protein. No. And when people are like, okay, what do you mean by protein? I'm like, it's the leucine concentration, right? So we're looking at that three and a half minimum per 20 gram, which is way, but ideally you're hitting between four and seven grams of leucine, which mm -hmm. is a lot. But there's a um, paper that just came out this week that talks about, I'll send it to you, talks about um, the leucine concentration in so many different types of foods. So you can look and be like, okay, well, that's really good post-exercise. And that'd be good later in the day when I need a little bit more, but maybe not as much post-exercise. Because okay. people are like, oh, yeah, plant-based, I'm plant-based, I want some protein. It's like seven grams of peanut butter, like you say. It's just not, does not equate from a leucine standpoint or a 30 gram of whole protein. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love she's, to see that list. Yeah. That would be awesome. What's that? Yeah. Said so she's trying. That's yeah. great. Oh no. And she's doing great. She's doing excellent. And it's just, it's it's again, it's misconception of like people will, you know, I think a lot of times too is the the vegan population, which I love them. It's great. There's there's no hard feelings there, but you know, there'll be like great sources of protein and there's an infographic on Instagram and it's like peanut butter, you know, this and that. And while they do contribute to your protein intake and they're great food sources. I think we'll see that sometimes we're like, oh, if protein's great, if I add, you know, a little protein to my smoothie, I'm good for protein. And it's, this is why yeah. it's really important to work with a professional just to evaluate your diet and say, okay, yeah. am I really getting what my needs are? Um, and you have a, you have a program, right? For, for women um, specific to menopause. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so we have an online course that talks about all of this stuff that goes in the depth and the science and the history of women and menopause. And then the application of training and nutrition. And then we have um, a specific training program, like strength training program that shows women like what it means to lift heavy. Um, yeah. So, and then we have the equivalent of ROAR for the peri and postmenopausal set coming out in July. Excellent. Um, yeah. Lots yeah. of stuff. I'm excited. Yeah. That's great. Well, I look forward to being able to share those resources with my clients. That's, that's awesome. Um, oh, thanks. So yeah, that's, that was my, my biggest question there for just kind of female general health. Now in terms of gut health. So I know you've talked a little bit about this in your gut and because it's kind of my specialty, um, what are your thoughts on like artificial sweeteners, especially things like stevia and monk fruit? These are kind of like the newer ones. Um, I don't know if you've seen any specific research on that. I I've done a little bit of research and done an episode on this before, but curious as to what your thoughts are on artificial sweeteners and the gut microbiome. And the other one that's around here is thaumatin, T-H-A-U-M-A-T-I-N. Mm. And it's a protein that only humans can taste the sweetness, but you know, it's very strange. And they use it as a, as a, you know, another form of a stevia. Um, if you were to like pick stevia leaves and put them in your tea as a sweetener, that's fine. But when you start looking at the extracts and things that they're putting in, that's not fine. Yeah. Like you look at how it affects, you know, you're taking something that's sweet and your body thinks it's getting sugar and the bacteria is like, I'm going to get some sugar and it doesn't. So there's a whole cascade of things. It's like, just have a little bit of, of maple syrup, not yeah. the artificial sugar. Um, there's mixed results from the literature talking about sugar substitutes affecting the gut microbiome. They're talking more about the upper, not the lower. 
But when you're thinking about, you know, monk fruit, again, it's the same as if you get the monk fruit and you're peeling it and you're putting that in as, but all the refining aspects of it all just creates a more of a, a chemical response that's not good for the gut. Yeah, and I, I watched a whole YouTube video on how stevia um, is, or stevia, how it is extracted and the process, like the process that produces a really good quality, pure product is a multi-step, you know, arduous process to get this final product. And I just thought to myself, no way is the food industry doing this. It's way too expensive. They're doing it in a cheaper way. They're doing it in a way where the product is, you know, less pure. And in my eyes, I'm just thinking, okay, well, that's probably, you know, there's got to be some sort of consequences from doing that. And as you mentioned, it's very different from getting the actual leaf itself. So I'm, I definitely would, um, I advise clients to limit their intake of them, if not just eliminate them and, you know, consume real sugar if they want to have sugar and just use it in moderation, like anything else. Yeah, exactly. People are so sugar phobic. And uh, that again has come up in conversation where people are like, oh, I can't have that has sugar in it. It's like, it's another form of elimination. It's like sugar's okay. Yeah. It, it's appropriate in a time and a place. No, don't have it all the time every day, but in around training, sure. You know, you have a really low blood sugar and you're getting ready to walk into a meeting, you have some dates, right? Mm-hmm. So there's time and a place for it. And people are keeping, they're like one or the other. There's never really any of that moderation on the inside. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not sexy, unfortunately. Unfortunately, the no. word balance is not sexy. And No, not at all. But yeah. here we are, here we are doing our best to educate people. And hopefully some of these things will resonate. And, you know, you get to a point where you're, you're realizing like, wow, all these things that diet culture told me are not working. So maybe it's time to look somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, most important question of the episode is what is your favorite childhood memory with food? Oh, oh. when we went to visit my um, mom's parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so growing up as an army brat, never really got that much time with my grandparents. So we would try to have like a little family reunion in West Lafayette, Indiana. My grandfather would always bring out the ice cream maker. So my grandmother would be upstairs making the pure custard for the vanilla um, ice cream. And then all the grandkids would go downstairs and have a chance to help churn it with the salt. And oh then gosh. when it was finally done, pulling it out and getting a spoon and putting it on the pad would get the fresh made vanilla ice cream. Wow. Wow. That's a memory right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun because, I mean, it's something that you're making and you see, but it's also the family thing and it's Mm -hmm. yummy ice cream. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. I need to get myself an ice cream maker. My my boyfriend sent me a, um, there's like a soft serve machine. I love ice cream. I'm lactose intolerant to some extent, depending on, you know, how stressed I am. Um, yeah. But uh, he sent me a picture of, or a video of a soft serve maker. And I'm like, gosh, that would be, that would be dangerous to have. I would, I would have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, we have one and pull it out in the summer because my kid loves it. But it's like trying to make it in um, like sorbets and stuff instead yeah. of dairy-based. Yeah. And she doesn't really know the difference. She just thinks it's fantastic until she yeah. goes out with people who have real ice cream. And then she's <laughs> like, can we make chocolate ice cream? 
<laughs> there was a there was a movie at one point I forget what it was there was like a little girl and the family like tried to like they had like a no sugar in the house at all and I remember she like in the movie she goes to a birthday party or something and she comes home and she's had sugar for the first time and it's like she was she's like you lied to me this whole time <laughs> it just makes me think of that for some reason yeah um, oh no yeah yeah we can't like my kid doesn't have a lot so if she has chocolate she's like crazy so we're like you can't have chocolate before bed or you don't go to sleep it's not that you can't have it you just can't have it before bed yeah because then we're going to be up all night because of it absolutely so dr sims thank you so much for coming on can you tell people where they can find you outside of the fact that they should absolutely go out and get your book today roar um but where can they find you on instagram and and social media all of social, I'm Dr. Stacy Sims, just one word. And then also have a website that's drstacysims.com. So you can follow me on Insta, um, Facebook, um, Twitter, and then, of course, the website. And your TED Talk. Your TED Talk was badass. I loved your TED Talk. Oh, thanks. That was great. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank yeah, you so much you. again for taking the time to come on. This was really fun and just appreciate it so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It has been fun. I've been looking forward to it. Good, thanks. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your gut health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, you can go to nutritionrewired.com. You can also find my book, Rewire Your Gut Here, This is an excellent resource for anybody who's looking to improve their health, whether it's hormone balance, whether it's weight management, whether it's improved mood and energy, digestion. This is a great place to start. And if you liked today's episode, it would be such a great help if you could leave a comment, if you could share with a friend. All of those things will help me reach more people and get the word out there. So thanks so much for sharing the health.